This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Welcome to Vivid Sydney. I am Yvonne Weldon, Wiradjuri Woman and Deputy Chairperson of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council. I would like to pay my respects to our elders past and present to all First Nations, to you and the many ancestors of the lands you've travelled from. The landscapes of this continent tell us the stories of our culture, our history and our boundaries. On behalf of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, the elders and the members, I welcome everyone to the land of the Gadigal. I acknowledge Gadigal people whose spirits and ancestors will always remain with this land, our Mother Earth. Here today, tomorrow and every day, let us be inclusive, kind and respectful wherever we venture. Enjoy Vivid Sydney. Hi everyone and welcome to Vivid Sydney and the Australian Museum. My name's Gil Minavini, I'm the Festival Director of Vivid Sydney and it's a real delight to see so many of you here tonight for this fantastic talk. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Um, You may already know that Vivid Ideas is part of Vivid Sydney, um, the world's largest celebration of light, music, ideas and now food. This year we celebrate nature, Vivid Sydney Naturally, our connection with the natural world through all of the pillars, through light, through music, through ideas and through food, you'll see each of those artists and chefs responding to our natural environment. And what an example of that we have tonight. Tonight's talk, of course, is called What We Can Learn From Nature and who better than the incredible Layla Jeffries, Tim Lowe and David Gandelman to help us listen. Layla is an incredible photographer. You will see quite a lot of her work here tonight. Someone I was privileged to meet last year um, when we selected her work, Temple, as part of uh, the 2022 festival. Some of you may remember it. Um, It was um, in Circular Quay just behind McDonald's. I hate that description, but that's where it was. (laughs) Um, And I think it showed uh, everybody a new direction in terms of what we can do at Vivid and how we can draw attention by working with incredible artists like Layla to the plight of our wildlife and the wider environment around us and I think there's a mini the mini temple is here in the museum tonight so if you missed it or you would like to see it again please have a look. Um, Layla and I I'm happy to say have since become friends and share a common love of all things birds total bird nerds uh, including a few walks in Sydney Park and she's met my magpie friends I'm yet to be introduced to many of hers but um, I'll let her tell you about that in a little while. Layla, of course, understands the importance of interconnection and belonging for all creatures and has curated the lineup for tonight. That includes Tim Lowe, Tim, give us a wave, who has decades of research and has written numerous bestsellers, including Where Song Began, The Bible for Many. And David Gandelman, a mindfulness expert who's flown in from LA to join us and he's Colorado, sorry, how dare, how very dare I, Colorado, um, and is the host of the Meditation School podcast and app. Um, we'd also like to thank, of course, our Auslan interpreters, Jen and Danny. Please give them a big hand. They've got a big job ahead of them. 
Of course, the wonderful Australian Museum team, especially Narelle Lewis and Liz Young, please give them a hand. With This is our second year working with the museum. And of course, the Vivid Ideas team, Tori Loudon, Kate Williams and the whole Vivid Sydney team who are just working their pants off making this festival the best it can possibly be. Please give them a big hand too. After the talk, please stick around and make the most of the tours of the museum by artist and bird enthusiast Nathan Harrison. I hear that is something not to be missed. The live music by Tom Hogan, Vanessa Finney sharing the stories of Gould's Book of Birds, and I guarantee by the end of it, we're all going to be bird nerds, so I really hope you enjoy tonight. Please welcome our guests for tonight and on with the show. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Gil. I thought I would just start by just doing a little bit of an overview about why the evening has come about, who the speakers are, and why I'm so glad that you're here. Firstly, thank you to Vivid and the Australian Museum for having us. Uh, to give you a little bit of background, I'm a photographic artist. I've been photographing portraitures of birds for 15 years now. And it, it, I, I met Tim Lowe in 2008 on Christmas Island. And when I first discovered Tim Lowe's work, it became the foundation for a lot of the exhibitions that I was producing. So it can be two to three years between a show, but there's a, a deep line of inquiry and a lot of research that comes into deciding what you're going to exhibit. And so Tim is a naturalist. He has an incredible way of communicating the wonder of nature. And I would just absorb so much of his writing. He has written so many amazing books. And and really, so many of my exhibitions have been sort of based on what I've learned from Tim. And then in 2019, the bushfires hit and I fell into a heap. I, I was hit by you know, the immense amount of grief, which I, I think so many people can relate to. And, I, and it's probably because for 15 years I'd been focusing on the individual. I'd been looking at these portraits of these birds and, and trying to see if I can get others to connect with them and see their awe and their beauty. And to think that we lost you know, a billion in a go was, was sort of devastating for me. And it was a really interesting, from a creative perspective, a really interesting time because once I fell into that, that grief, I, I just started soul searching and, and I came across David Ganderman who is this meditation teacher and I guess one of the takeaways was we are an insane species. The more I started to understand the working of the human mind, I just was fascinated and, and so my last exhibition was called The Wound is the Place Where the Light Enters and it's a quote from, from a 13th century uh, scholar uh, it's, it, I, it really resonated with me. It was this beautiful idea that through our hardest times, it tends to be when we can evolve and grow the most. And so my exhibition, which was last year, was sort of based around, around this. And then that got me thinking, I love nature and I'm an artist. Tim loves nature, he's a scientist. And David loves nature and he's a meditation teacher, he's a spiritualist. And I thought, wouldn't it be fascinating if you put the three people that come from very different worlds together to talk about, about nature and what we can learn from it? So, so that's the basis of, of tonight. And, and I think it's really important 
to take in new ideas. Sometimes we just stay in our lane and we don't listen to you know, people that come at things from different angles. So I don't know if it's ever been done before that a scientist, a spiritualist and an artist has been together, but we'll give it a go. Uh, and so I've just got a couple of slides. I just thought I would show a few slides to sort of set the scene as well. Uh, wait for them to come up. So these are tawny frogmouths. I'm sure most of you might know them. They are absolutely adorable to work with. They're probably my favourite birds to work with because they don't move. <laughs> <laughs> They're fantastic. Uh, but I'll just start very briefly at the beginning. So I grew up, I was born in Papua New Guinea, my mum was born in India, my dad is from the Isle of Man in the British Isles, and my brother was born in Australia. And my family, I, I would say, were quite adventurous. We travelled a lot when we were kids, and we were immersed in nature. It was a very much a free-range sort of childhood, and I was animal-obsessed. So I, I just show that because I, I have this sense that what happens to us in our childhood tends to have such a huge effect to us when we're adults later on in life. And so I had this sort of childhood and I had this, these wonderful experiences, but I went to university, I got a degree, I studied photography professionally, I tried to be a professional photographer and I was terrible at it. I, I found, I found photographing, you know, being told I have to go and shoot this, turn it over overnight, deliver it the next day. It was so stressful, it just didn't suit me. And so I kind of changed tactics and I became a photo editor working in magazines and I sort of said goodbye to photography. But it meant that I was living a very urban life. So I was in Sydney, just working in an office that had no natural light. I was, you know, it was very much an urban existence. And in 2008, something happened to me. I just had this incredible feeling that I needed to reconnect with nature. There was, there was this desire in me to experience it again. And so I sent myself off to Christmas Island, uh, which is uh, near Java, and it was on Christmas Island. These are just a few snaps thrown together just to try and give you a bit of a feel. But Christmas Island is beautiful. I think it's 70% tropical rainforest. Mm. Uh, David Attenborough has put it in his top 10 life experiences when he saw the red crab migration on Christmas Island. And it was there that I just came alive. I was so happy. I was helping ornithologists tag seabirds. And it was there that I met Tim Lowe. So this was the beginning of my life changing. And, and what happened on Christmas Island was I was with a lot of bird watchers and we were all looking through our binoculars and, and staring at the birds. And I was thinking, why is it that the whole world isn't bonkers about the beauty of these birds? They're so incredible. I couldn't, couldn't get my head around it. And then I started thinking, well, I guess it's because they're fleeting, they're moving fast, they're small, they're sometimes behind foliage, or they're hidden. Uh, and that was that moment where I just went, oh, I want to photograph birds where I, where I photograph them as portraits. And not just portraits, but how I used to see them when I was a child. I used to see their personality and their character, and I thought I would love to do that. It was never to be a career, it was nothing but just more... A, 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 a kind of a crazy desire to just create. 
And so that set me off that path. So this was like an extraordinary time for me. And this is when I met Tim and he opened my eyes to what a naturalist, the way a naturalist sees the world. And that was just like food for the soul. It was incredible. Uh, and then I'll just give you another quick, I've been very spoilt this year because then this year, early this year, my family and I went to Nepal and we did a trek in Nepal with David. So again, there's this immersiveness in nature and this realising that uh, we are... We, we have this connection, we all have this connection to nature and we had an incredible experience in Nepal. And just to show you how spoilt I've been, I've less than a week ago just come back from Macquarie Island, which is in sub-Antarctica. And uh, just to give you a little bit of background, we, I didn't even know this existed. We have what is called the Australian Antarctic Program and we've been sending expeditioners to uh, Antarctica and sub-Antarctica, uh, basically for science and research. And it's really just people, you, you go down on an icebreaker, it is people that are passionate about the environment and, and jobs that I never even knew existed. There was 70 of these specialists on this icebreaker that I got to tag along with. Uh, one person's job is they were a space weather forecaster. You know, these jobs, they just go, who are you? These very <laughs> smart, interesting people. And so... We, we travelled down on this icebreaker, we went to Macquarie Island, and I will mention if there's any artists in the audience, you can apply. So I just applied to, to travel, because I'm working on a book on seabirds. So I basically was just saying, I'm doing a book on seabirds, and I, I would love to experience the life of seabirds. They live in the fringes, they live in these remote places. And Tim has also been on the same fellowship, has also travelled down for his book writing. Uh, so I just wanted you to just sort of see that, just to set the scene, uh, and then I'm just going to ask some questions, and then at the end, we've sort of got 45 minutes, and then at the end we're going to do a Q&A, and, you know, if anyone, so if you think of any questions while we're talking, uh, we, can, we can ask some questions then. Uh, so I think we can get started. So, Tim and David. I started to randomly hug trees. It's become a thing. I know it's very daggy, but every now and then I see a tree and I just think it is so beautiful. I, I just wonder, Tim, what fascinates you about trees? I mean, obviously you could spend an hour talking about that, but I think the sense of time, that animals move quickly and trees are very slow and they live a long time. I mean, the wonderful thing, I, the last house I lived at before this one, I only took me like 20 minutes to decide to buy it, and one of the things was that the median strip outside, this is in Brisbane, Chapel Hill, the median strip had an old-growth eucalypt on it. I'm thinking, that is one of the biggest spotted gums I've ever seen. That is older than white settlement in Australia. I'm buying this house. <laughs> so for 30 years, I lived with an old-growth tree, and it was just an anchor for me, you know, like... Really giving me a deep sense of time, and there were young eucalypts all around, including in my backyard. That uh, they weren't that old, but they obviously weren't planted. They were sprinkled around. So, in fact, my neighbour for 30 years is sitting here, Jill Scatterball. She's 90, 93 years old, I think. And we became best friends through natural history, and we'd share all our excitement when there was a whip bird in the backyard and so on. But getting back to trees, that 
this, this sense of time that um, trees can live for hundreds of years. And so, um, you know, you're looking at something and you can just think, well, when this was young, like, there was no city of Brisbane here. There were no white people in the country. That's, that's kind of really heavy stuff. And, um, of course, some trees are thousands of years old. I mean, all of our capital cities, if you went back 20 years, they had old-growth trees in them. And unfortunately, I mean, there was one in the Sydney Botanic... Which way is the Sydney Botanic Gardens from here? I'm a bit disoriented. Yeah. <coughs> that one. OK. Yeah, so there was one there that... I wrote about it, but it's, it's died. But, I mean, there are um, uh, she-oaks. There's she-oaks there that have suckered ever since, you know, so there's pre, they're not old trees, but they keep sprouting from their, their roots, and, and they are older than European settlement. Um, Adelaide's got great trees. I think Melbourne, some of them have died. Um, Tasmania, the domain, just magnificent old trees, you know, girths mm. like that. And they're just somehow surviving in cities. The loggers can't get to them. So you've got that sense of time. But also, trees evolve slowly. So... Um, you know, the oldest eucalypt fossils, 51 million years old, beautiful fossils. Like, you can see the leaves, the flowers, the gum nuts. You think, my God, they just look just like, like today's eucalypts, 51 million years old. If you went back that far and looked at the birds or mammals, you'd recognise almost nothing. I mean, there'd be penguins, wow. so there'd be penguins. But, yeah, so that sense of time in two senses that you can look at these eucalypts and you're seeing the kind of scene that was around a really long time ago and the individual tree can be so old as well. That's incredible, so beautiful. Well, and so David, I'd love to ask you about, I guess, is it the essence of a tree or what is it about trees? So I've started to learn meditation through David and. And I think trees, I do find, are very grounding. Uh, what's your take on it? First of all, I would love to watch Leela be walking her dog and then hug a tree and just see your neighbors catch you. <laughs> <laughs> She's having a moment. Um, you know, in, in Buddhism, they say that the Buddha found his enlightenment sitting under a tree. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he chose a tree to sit under to meditate. Um, sometimes I also wonder if the tree was aware going, hmm, this is an incredible being finding enlightenment. I'll give him some shade <laughs> and he'll have a really nice special place to sit. And maybe they had some kind of a relationship. So I fantasize about that. That would be nice. <laughs> the tree, or, or the tree's like, I don't want you here. Get out. <laughs> uh, when I teach meditation, um, one of the things that we work on is learning how to feel more present, obviously, if you've ever... Who here has ever meditated? Uh, oh, good amount. So tr I find that trees really help us be in, the, in this moment. And that goes for all of nature, and we'll get into that tonight. But there's something so special about a tree. Um, when I sit with the energy of a tree, and if you haven't ever done this, I suggest you hug the tree and then sit... You can you sense the roots going to the earth. You might feel that rootedness and that groundedness in yourself. You can feel the stability. So maybe you sit and meditate and you feel a stability inside yourself. You can even notice the branches that grow out and then maybe a beautiful leaf or flower grows out of that branch. And, there's, and then you notice, wow, the, the most delicate, maybe the most colorful, beautiful part of the tree is the most vulnerable and precious, and it grows at the very end. Uh, and there's these roots at a very stable structure holding it all up for something very precious to come out. 
So when I look at that, I, I think of us as human beings, as society, maybe our artists are our most precious creatures, beings, excuse me, and, uh, and we need all of this stability structure foundation to be able to birth something so vulnerable. So when I look at a tree, I see all of life in it. And then the spiritual lesson for me from the tree is really how to be in the moment. A teacher of mine would always say, you never see an oak tree looking at the oak tree next to it and going, why are you taller? <laughs> why are you more grounded or rooted stronger? The tree never complains and it's always in the moment. And I think those are beautiful lessons and probably why the Buddha chose to sit under one. Mm. Um, and I, I also could talk about it all night, so I'll stop there. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I, and I think when you talk about the tree being present, what, what I learned really was like when you actually start meditating, oh my goodness, it is noisy in that head. And, <laughs> and when you re, and I, you, you've sort of explained it to me before, but you're sort of saying when, when you notice your thoughts, your thoughts are either thinking about the past or they're thinking about the future and they're bouncing back and forth. But it's very rare that we're actually present, but nature seems to make us present. She's been listening. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't have said it better my, myself. Uh, we've, uh, as beings, we've evolved to focus on the future so we can hunt and gather and then, you know, save for the future for all sorts of survival reasons. We reflect into the past and project into the future. And that tool that is so useful that's helped us build our entire, entire civilization is now turned on us and has started torturing us. Who here feels like they think too much throughout the day? Everybody, come on, be honest. Uh, we're little hamster wheels in there. Yeah, so the tree helps us be in this moment. Mm. You said it really nicely. Yeah. I love that. Uh, Tim, when I was in Macquarie Island, and you've been there, so I think you'll understand this, I felt like the island was this giant battery charger. Like, I, as soon as I landed, it, the atmosphere was incredible. And I, I was bouncing around. Like, I was just so excitable. It was, I was probably really painful to all the scientists that were there, but I was beyond, like, just could not, ex could not convey how much energy I had just from being on the island. What is it about Macquarie Island? You know, so it's in sub-Antarctica. Why is it so special? Well, it is. I mean, if you spin, put your finger on a globe where Macquarie Island is and spin it around, there's almost no other land there. So you are looking at kind of ec ecosystems that are really rare. Um, giant elephant seals, which they're not as big as elephants, but you can stand so close to them that they're effectively bigger than elephants, you know, an elephant over there versus an elephant seal right here rearing up. So, yeah, it's very um, powerful. But I think partly as well as that is the sense that nature's still in charge, that yes. there is the research station. I mean, incredibly effect, uh, affected by the whaling era and, uh, you know, the, the killing of seals and penguins, so we shouldn't um, forget that. Mm. But it is overwhelming the sense that there's a little group of people at one end and then there's this old... So I met, I met these researchers, they were testing for faecal contamination from the, um, the research station to make sure that the toilet system wasn't polluting the sea and they said the faecal contamination around the seals and the penguins is way higher. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think... I mean, I think that... We want to recharge ourselves with nature by going to places like that. But I always want to bring that back home because I'm a great believer that 
nature is everywhere in the city. And so I mean, I just think like a couple of months ago, I'm hearing the noisy miners so I'm, you know, in a different house in Brisbane now, but he hearing them really agitated and think there's a bird of prey, I go outside, I look, look around and there's a little, um, uh, there's a hobby, a little tiny falcon flew, just flew across. I thought, yeah, that's what it was. So I go back inside. Ten minutes later, they're agitated again. So I go back out. It's coming back, but it's carrying something. Oh. This is big. And I'm thinking, what is that? What? It's, it's just caught something. So in the time that I've been back at my computer, something's died. Yeah. And I, I think it was a, a crested pigeon, because I think most of the birds in the suburb, they know noisy minor alarm calls. They know. Mm. But pigeons wouldn't be tuned into that, mm. that wavelength. And so, but just that sense of these powerful nature dramas, a sort of Attenborough-type kill, chase, fight. I mean, you know, they're happening, happening all around us. You know, being in Melbourne, you look up, and just, just at the moment, the peregrine falcon's flown over, and there's peregrines in the middle of Sydney. So I think that it's great to get inspired by somewhere like Macquarie Island or the Serengeti or the Amazon, mm. but we shouldn't forget that, that wild presence. It is, it is still all around us everywhere. Well, that's right. I, you, you do say that nature can be found deep in the cities, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be experienced everywhere. You don't have to travel that far to experience those yeah, things. I'm just, I mean, I flew down from um, Brisbane today, but I quickly visited a friend, Greg, in Redfern. I said, hey, you've got native panic grass in your backyard. He said, it's a tiny little inner Redfern. And then like a quarter of his lawn is... And this, um, this little panic, I mean, it's mainly you get on the edges of rainforests, but, you know, a little wet shady backyard it, it, it's, and it's uh, yeah so and, and and I mean interesting thing about garden weeds I mean you know you walk to the bus stop it's a little bit boring but you just look at all the weeds and there's all sorts of weeds you just see them over and over again but there's all sorts of rare urban plants that are coming up in lawns and so you know within a 15 minute radius of my house yeah I mean there'd easily be 60 or 70 species of plant growing in the lawn and I, yeah. I just it's just a buzz all this diversity is there yeah, and I think that, yeah, it's just very enriching, you know, if you hone in on the aesthetics of, you know, like all, all plants are, are beautiful and mm. just to practice your appreciation of beauty and seeing, you know, you, you can do that while you're waiting for the bus. It's, it's noticing it, isn't it? And because and, I, I haven't, I would, I would walk down my street and would just see, you know, there'd be regular flocks of, I don't know, rainbow lorikeets. Mm. And to me, they make me stop and just go, oh. Look at them. I mean, they're incredible. And then I would notice sometimes there's just people walking by, and they they don't they don't even realise that this is all happening above their heads. And yeah, it is that thing of remember to look up. Yeah, all look down. You know, there's everywhere. And also remember the commonplace. So I mean, there's no way I could look at a rainbow lorikeet every day and yes. admire the beauty. But you yeah. kind of ignore them for a few months and think, wait a sec, let's look at a rainbow lorikeet. <laughs> oh my god, that is so beautiful. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I've got another question for you. Uh, given that we evolved to be hunter-gatherers, how does this affect our relationship to nature now? Oh, well, well for me, it, it is very much, I think, the sense that the, 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 the naturalists, whether they live in the city or, or anywhere, they are living to some extent as, as a hunter-gatherer. That... Um, mm -hmm. You know, if you think of like bird watching as an obsessive activity, I think you know, there's a lot of people on the spectrum who get into bird watching, <laughs> and, that, and I think it's a pity because um, 
you can go out with a bunch of bird watchers and think, these people are really boring, I don't want to do this. <laughs> but, but then there are heaps of bird watchers who, of course, are nothing like that. You know, they're, yes. like, they're like you, they're expansive yeah. and excited about life. You're not one of the boring ones, you're saying. <laughs> I'm not either. Not one of the boring ones. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm definitely a bird watcher, but, but I mean, the time when you're like looking for these, I mean, some of you will be bird watchers, you know, grass runs out in the desert, they're, they're skipping around in the spin effects, they hardly die, they don't want you to see them. And you can just be standing there, and you know there's one in the spin effect somewhere, and it just gets, 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 oh, I didn't probably see it, what was that? <laughs> and that, you know, you're, you're skulking around and you're hunting, and you can be staring, and you know the bird, it might move, or it could be a lizard or a mammal. And just the, the intensity where you're, you're straining with your senses because you know you may only get the shortest glimpse, and you want it to be diagnostic. You, you want to know what it is yeah. that you're looking at, not just that I saw a bird, but what kind of bird. Mm. And that, that has to be so much like the hunter poised with the spear, just all flexed and ready. Mm. And, and so, you know, it is, it's hunting without the killing. And, mm. and I think that's... Um, yeah. And so, so I think, you know, it, it answers to kind of... Uh, psychological, biological needs within us. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never thought about it like that. I, and I know what you mean. I remember when I first saw a noisy pitter and in Sydney and the, that moment of seeing it and that stillness that you sort of you hold your breath and go, <gasps> and you just don't want to move because yes, you don't yes, want to startle yes. it and you're watching it. And then, you know, you're thinking, oh, my goodness, that bird has flown from Papua New Guinea to here. Like, how? And... Yeah, so I can see I can see how that is. Yeah, that's amazing, absolutely amazing. Uh, David, I've got a question for you. Uh, I notice how different I feel from when I'm on Macquarie Island to, say, a shopping mall. Uh, so I think sometimes we forget we're animals after all. You know, we can we wear shoes and we can be in shoes without touching the earth and not even really notice it. And sometimes we're working in offices, we have no natural light. I think I heard somewhere that Australians get one hour of natural light a day on average. So, you know, we are, I don't know if that's quite right, but we are completely, you know, disconnected from the sun. Uh, and we're glued to screens now as well. So what are, you, what are your thoughts on this? An hour of sunlight a day, I should sell vitamin D drops in this country. <laughs> um, actually, I spent seven years living in Hawaii, um, and I remember watching people get off the plane and taking their first deep breath, <gasps> seeing the ocean, seeing the birds, seeing the nature. Mm. Uh, for, for us, for those of us who live in the cities, uh, and a lot of Earth is uh, in civilizations like this now, we cover the planet with cement, and we create light pollution and we can no longer see the stars. And we lose our connection with the earth and with the universe. And those are, this is our home. Um, and so what happens is we start to live very horizontal lives. Let's call it like a horizontal consciousness. So I'm walking through the city, I'm looking in front of me and I'm looking behind me. Maybe that's analogous to looking at the future and looking at the past. And I rarely look up and I rarely look down. And I'm always in a rush. Get out of my way. At least I grew up in, around New York City. <laughs> it was like, get out of my way. And a uh, <laughs> very friendly place. <laughs> and so we lose touch. We lose connection very easily. That way. I don't even want to blame anybody. It's just kind of what we've evolved into doing. Mm. Um, I'm sure some of you have had the experience where you've taken your shoes off and just walked on grass 
and you could just you can feel the earth that's wider than your feet you can feel the energy of the planet in uh, in many parts of asia they might call that chi life force in india they might call it prana you could just feel the energy of the planet and uh, i remember in hawaii we hawaii the big island is one of the best places to see the stars in the world there's over a billion dollars of telescopes on top of mauna kea it's an incredible spot and when you go up there uh, on a starry night, moonless night, it's just awe-inspiring. And I'm sure everyone here has had the experience of looking up into the stars and feeling that sense of expansiveness, that wonder of what is this universe that I live in. And then you could drive into the city or wherever you go and you totally forget and you're concerned because you're five minutes late for something and you've just totally lost that connection. We've all, all been through that. Um, and so being connected to the planet in a very real way and to the stars, I think helps us come home to who we really are. And that can relieve a lot of tension and anxiety in human beings. I forgot your original question, but I hope it answered it a little bit. <laughs> I think that, that answered it perfectly. Uh, Tim, I love your books and I love the way you write. I think you have this beautiful way of expressing nature that the everyday person can relate. There's a, in Where Song Began, which is my favourite book, which is obviously about birds, uh, Tim talks about this flock of birds coming to roost at night time, a large flock in a tree, and he describes the sound as... It's like a country hall dance where everyone is talking but no one is listening. And I think that's beautiful. Uh, I, I just wonder, how, how do you strive to bring people closer to nature with your writing? Well, I guess that, um, I mean, I suppose I've been into nature since early childhood and you just think this stuff is amazing. But then you look around that most people aren't as excited as you, that, you know, you see an echidna or something, look at it, and people go, oh, yeah, that's exciting. Then they walk off after 10 seconds. And, mm. How could you walk off after 10 seconds? <laughs> And so, yeah, just striving to write about it because I want, I want people to, to care about it so they save it. And, and you, you know, you really feel there's two things there that I feel my life's incredibly enriched and there's will be two and then they'll, they'll want to save it, so that's better. But, yeah, I think that you do have these moving experiences. I mean, I think just like a month ago... Um, you know, I was thinking about this talk and the crows in the backyard, they're making this amazing racket... So I go out, they're really upset about something, and I'm looking around the Tipuana tree next door, and they're flying in there, and I'm thinking, what's going on? And then, boom, this big white thing comes flying out. And I realised like it was a barn owl, like they were harassed a barn owl, and this, it just zoomed straight over the yard, just above my deck. Now, I'm not, I'm not actually really spiritual, but mm. if I was, I mean, it's just like a scene out of a Harry Potter movie. You know? <laughs> and so that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that I put in my writing, that it did feel like one of those owls in a Harry Potter movie. And so mm. that's the kind of thing that sticks in your mind. I suppose part of the advantage of spending a lot of time in the nature, I mean, often it's boring. You know, you walk around and you don't, you don't see anything. I mean, it's nice. Mm. But then, you know, these sort of David Attenborough-like moments, you know, the cameraman's sitting in a hide for months and so on. Absolutely. And so you go on walks where nothing happens. But, you know, you just spend so much time there that you do have moving experiences and so you say why why did that move me and you mm. just write it down and yeah use it. 
Well, you've got to keep writing. Have you got a book coming out? Are you working on something at the moment? Yeah, yeah, I've got a couple of a couple of book projects. I <laughs> make sure I live long enough. <laughs> I mean, that, that was twelve years I was writing that bird book. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought my because my exhibition's about three years work, and I thought that was a long time, but twelve years. Although my seabird project, I've been working on that for eight years now because it's so hard to access seabirds, you yeah, know. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah that's that's lines. Uh, okay, let's see what else. I've got so many questions, but I'm also mindful of time, so I just need to keep an eye on While things. you find it, I just want to say I love that Tim's uh, his idea, his personal idea of spirituality is Harry Potter. That warms my heart. <laughs> <laughs> really warms my heart. I think that's my Bible, so I'm with you. <laughs> um, I, I've got a question for you, David. Uh, so one of the things that keeps me up at night is how much as a species, a human species, we waste. So my heart hurt, then hurts when I see the natural world being depleted. Uh, it's one thing to consume, but I think we overconsume. And then it's another thing to destroy nature and the natural environment to create products that are used once or, you know, then used and discarded. Why do we overconsume and why do we waste so much? Are you asking that because I'm American? <laughs> <laughs> Ask him. Um, you know, I actually, I just came from, we were in Nepal together hiking the Himalayas, spent a few months there, uh, and then I was in India, Thailand, and then just got here. So I've been on the road for a little while. And when, if you've ever been to a place like India or Indonesia, uh, China, you'll see there's a, there can be a lot of plastic uh, in the West, we tend to clean it up and put it in the ocean. <laughs> we hide it away. Yeah. But in a lot of developing countries, you'll see it on the streets everywhere. It is right in your face. Mm. In India, you'll see cows eating the plastic, mm. uh, monkeys in it. It's just wild to see how much plastic is out there. And it just strains your brain to think why we're doing this to ourselves. We have this beautiful planet, and every day we just find brand new ways to destroy it. We're probably going to create AI eventually that is aware, and it's just going to go, what are you doing? And it's just going to lecture us. Why are you doing this to your planet? Uh, but more seriously, you know, we, we overconsume for a lot of reasons, so I don't want to oversimplify it. But sometimes we overconsume because we might feel some emptiness inside of ourselves. So maybe if I have more cars, more houses, more clothes I could share on Instagram, whatever it is, then people will see me. I'll be heard, seen, loved. Mm -hmm. uh, and so from some deep pain or emptiness, we'll try to fill our day with shopping, with consuming, with eating, right? All of those things that uh, maybe give us short-term pleasure but long-term actually end up making us feel worse. Mm. And when we really learn to be in the moment, be mindful and, and be here, we naturally start doing less and less of that. I think when we're in tune with ourselves and with nature, all of a sudden we find a natural balance. Mm. That being said, um, it's who here gets sugar cravings at night like <laughs> me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, there's bacteria in the stomach if you eat a lot of sugar and it, convinces your brain you want to eat it. And then you think, 
I want sugar, but really it's not even you. It's the little things in your gut going, feed me. Um, and so sometimes we need to fast for a little while to reset that microbiome. Right? And the same could be said for our lives. So it might not be as easy as eating less or consuming less just because I know it's a good idea. Uh, and that's why we do meditation retreats, maybe for a week or two, or even in your own life, you just start to fast, maybe a digital fast from social media, uh, and you kind of reset your system. Mm. And then you realize, wow, that was very excessive, mm. uh, and, f and start to find that balance. So I think we can find a rhythm, we can find harmony, we can find balance in ourselves. And then in, from the inside out, that's how I think we shift the world. Yes, we also have to do it from the outside in, government policies, all of it. Uh, but if we don't change as human beings, we'll endlessly find new technologies and ways to destroy the earth uh, and each other. Mm. Uh, uh, who we are on the inside will always be amplified through our technology on the outside. Mm. Uh, and so when somebody tells me AI is bad or nuclear fusion or something along those lines, uh, you could say fire is bad, but you can, use, you can use fire to blow something up or you can use fire to cook dinner and feed a lot of people. Mm. So I don't even think it's the technology all the time. It's, it's often just us and how we use it. Mm. Um, mm. Long-winded answer to that. No, it's great. Um, well, I, I, and sugar thing, watch out for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, so my last exhibition, that, that was, I think one of the realizations that I had was, oh, we need healthy humans. Like, if we want to save the environment, we need to be healthy in terms of our, you know, our well-being, I suppose, because I think the more you are self-aware of how you show up in the world, it's, it's, it, it makes you more conscientious of others. You, you just are... You, you do consider what, what you buy, what you spend. You do think about how you can help... So that's why that last exhibition sort of took a little bit of a different direction where it was a little bit more about, yeah, how can we as humans show up for a world that depends on us and, and, and maybe sort of flipping it to be a bit more inward focused because it's very easy to be outward focused and, and be blaming everything for all the problems in the world. But it's almost like if we, we spend some time with self-reflection, it's amazing how much we can learn. There's a quote I love uh, from Carl Jung, the psychologist. Apparently, one of his students asked him, is the apocalypse inevitable? And if you watch the news, the answer is yes. Uh, it's about to happen any second, right? <laughs> uh, you pick up the newspaper any day for the past 80, 100 years, and it feels like the apocalypse is inevitable in any moment. And it's that anxiety that it feeds off of, right, the media. Um, but he said, I love what he said, he said, uh, not, it's not inevitable if enough people do their inner work. And I, and I love that. Um, whenever people say it's all the government's fault, well, the government is also people. The government is made of people. We are all people. Um, and we create these problems and we can solve them. So, um, I don't think the apocalypse is inevitable, is what I'm trying to say. I hope, I hope it's not. Uh, I think we're running out of time, so I'm going to throw one last question. Uh, well, the title of the talk is What We Can Learn From Nature. Maybe it'd be nice to sort of end on that, if either of you have any thoughts about what we can learn from nature. I'll let David answer that first while I think about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Since I teach meditation, I don't think so I could just answer. <laughs> we don't want to answer. <laughs> um, there's this great quote from the Tao Te Ching um, where Lao Tzu says, in nature everything is accomplished and nothing is in a hurry. And I've, almost, I've never seen someone go and spend time in nature and then feel worse. We always get a healing by being in nature. We, I notice everyone feels better. We get recharged, like you were saying mm -hmm. earlier. And when I teach meditation, I often use nature, examples from nature, uh, analogies from nature. And almost any indigenous culture, any culture in the history of humanity, as you look, has had a very close relationship to nature up until ours. Hopefully we are changing that. Uh, and when you sit, for even, you don't even have to meditate. You could just sit in nature, and any question you ask, if you sit silently and long enough, nature will start to give you an answer. So for example, you might be sitting, looking up at the sky, going, I think too much. And then you might realize, wow, maybe my thoughts are like clouds passing in the sky. And I could just focus on this beautiful sky instead. And there's a stillness. Or, wow, I feel really ungrounded in my life. And then you sit next to a tree and you feel what it's like to be grounded. Right? Everything in nature will teach us if we slow down, ask the right question, and learn how to listen. Mm. Um, I even had a very brief story. I had a student once come to me and I said, why are you struggling? What is it that you want? And he said, I want to be really famous. It's like, okay, okay. And, I, and I, I, I thought for a moment, let me just use an analogy from nature. If I was to take you from sea level and drop you on top of Mount Everest, you would die from lack of oxygen. But if you climbed up yourself, if you conditioned and worked your way up over time, you would be able to handle it. Uh, so you need to work on it from the inside out and get there yourself over time and become the kind of person that could handle that. And I really emphasize that mountain uh, symbol. Because I've climbed many mountains and we've climbed mountains together. I lived in the Himalayas for a while. Mm. And there's something about the mountain for me. And I live in the mountains in Colorado now that is just very, very grounding. And I look at that mountain and I go, that is my life. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and we're all climbing on some path, on some trail, looking for something, some purpose, some awareness in life. Um, and so for that guy, maybe it wasn't really about fame, it was probably about finding love. So each of us, when we have a question, sit in nature, ask it out loud or ask it in your mind and see what starts to give you an answer. Mm. Uh, one time I did that and uh, I said, why am I not as good as my, one of my teachers? And a bird took a huge crap all over me <laughs> <laughs> uh, in Hawaii. I was like, got my answer. Stop crapping on myself. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Aloha. Mahalo. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I, th I think David put it well in, in sort of sense of asking what you can learn. So I hesitated a bit in the idea of a generic answer, but so what I have learned from nature, I mean, I think it's been a very anchoring thing for me. So mm -hmm. the house I lived in for 30 years, it had that tree, uh, these other trees. So the sense that I was, it's suburb normal suburban Brisbane, mm -hmm. not that far from the inner city, only like six train stops. But, um, but there was still the sense of a forest around me, so that's very calming and peaceful. Yep. I moved two years ago, but I got the same deal. I, I didn't get any pre-European trees, but I still I went through every window in my house. I can look out, see eucalypt 
or more than one, and think no one's planted those. Those are trees that were left over when it was developed. And so that, that sense of anchoring, the sense of rightness, the, the feeling that it, it is beautiful, it is as it should be. Mm. But then if you have that thought, the next thought you go to, if you spend a lot of time in it, there's, there's a lot of death. You know, you look at a pool and insects have just drowned in it and so on. And so um, there's a sense that the rightness doesn't mean that um, you live forever, that you, there's, there's dying going on and that's okay. And so I think, I think if you're a naturalist, that seeing a lot of death in nature, that does help you with the idea of your own mortality, the yeah. idea that... I don't want to live forever. I, I want to die. Dying, dying is right. Dying is good. Yeah. I, mean, I don't want to die too early, but yeah. um, you know, like it's good. No, that, I get that. And, and Macquarie Island, it was like that. You see it yeah, all. There's so much yeah. life being born, and then there's just death everywhere as well. And you like, well, this is real. This is this is exactly. the reality of life. Yep, yep. That is it. What um, about you, Leela? Uh, oh my goodness! You weren't meant to ask me a question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what can nature teach us? Well, what have well, you learned from nature? Yeah. Uh, well, I would say it probably started with a, an awareness of the other. So the more I started to search and look into nature and look at birds, obviously I've been working with birds for so long, I get filled with this sense of just love and awe. Like it's, it, it's that feeling that has really hit me and sort of inspires me to keep doing the work I do. But I also notice that when I work with birds, they're just present, like they're so present. And it's a beautiful experience to see, you know, I can see the difference. I can see when a bird is thinking, you know, if I, if I get something out, you can see they tilt their head. You can actually tell, oh, they're, they're thinking now. Then it stops and then they're just in the moment. And, and noticing that way of being is just so, uh, it's just so beautiful and it keeps making me feel like we can lean in a bit more to that. Uh, so I suppose there, there is that. And then I would say what I've learned from Tim in terms of just your mind is blown. Every time I work with a different species, I learn something new about how it's evolved and its life and its struggles and that stuff just blows my mind. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, and I just want to say one last point, and then we'll just quickly do some questions. Uh, I sort of also realise, in a way, it's not just us trying to save nature. Uh, it's if we learn from nature, nature can save us. So that's, that's just sort of a nice way to think about the importance of nature in our lives. Uh, and so we probably can do a few questions if anybody has any questions for anyone here. Mike's in the front here. Uh. I've, you can come up to the mic, yeah. Thank you. And if anybody on this side, you can line up if you have one. Um, yeah. Hi. yeah, I'd like to ask Tim something. What's your view of um, native bush versus whatever else we've got? There's a walk, I live by the water, and there's a walk near my house which was full of what would be deemed inappropriate plants, like this lantana, there's all sorts of mess. But I loved that walk because it was full of the birds and the little wagtails were there and all sorts of things. Now it's been cleared in order to put native bush there. But in the meantime, all the little birds that were there and all the things that I loved have all disappeared. So mm. I just wonder what your view was on that kind mm. of dichotomy. Yeah, look, I, I think reverting 
to the natives is good, but uh, that it should be transitioned. Mm. And I'm a little surprised if it is as, like that really stark way, because I think there is a lot of recognition in um, bush regeneration principles that, I mean, lantana is a great plant for native wildlife, and that if, if the choice is between a paddock and a paddock with lantana, then you know, lantana's definitely what you want. But um, yeah, it's also um, very, <laughs> very aggressive, huge problems in terms of changing fire regimes and so on. But yeah, it, th there should be the possibility if you take out a few clumps, plant, a few clumps, plant, do doing it that way so that, yeah, th it's win-win. Mm. Mm. Any other questions? Hi there. Um, Hi. First of all, thank you. A great trio of, uh, of minds with one fantastic common thread. Um, I'm asking a question by default, Scarlett, <laughs> my 11-year-old. Um, we, we're in the camp where we, uh, we actually own birds, have bird pets, yep. controversial as that may be. But we actually own one of your prints as well, um, Butterball mm. the Budgie. From a, from a while ago, so uh, my first show. Thank you for bringing Butterball into our life. Um, <laughs> the question that Scarlett had, though, was: Do you own any birds yourself? Yeah, uh, I don't. Uh, but I will say, I know people that keep birds, and they do give them an incredible life. Uh, but I would say that it's more work than a dog. Uh, and I, then I know there, there is lots of stories of birds that are just a lone bird in a cage, and it's a very sad life. So, you know, this is a, a broad thing. And, and, yeah, if you have a bird that you bring out, that you have bonded with, that it, it, it's almost like it becomes like a dog. You know, they, they, they can connect with you. I, I don't, but what I do do is wires. So every year, I don't do it all through the years because I just don't have the time, but during spring I tend to do plovers, and, and that is just so much fun. They're these just like, they're like a little popsicle with a you know, little ball, pink fluff ball on top. And they're self-feeding from a really young age. So the beauty of looking after them is you get little orphans and then you create a flock and, and you raise them. And uh, they're so much fun. So I get then to have that experience. So we get to have you know, and, and that is sort of my way of bringing them into the home. But then we get to release them as well, which is really lovely. And, yeah, I, I don't... I think, I think everyone needs to really sort of dial down judgment. I think that doesn't serve us at all. You know, I've seen... In fact, one of my Badrigar shows is two young girls that named every bird in the show. This is, this is high society. And that's because they had these two birds, these two budgies that flew through the house and... and, and that connection to those birds and what that gave them was beautiful. So, so it, 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 it's, it's a scale, and I think, yeah, we, we know that it is possible and, yeah, and beautiful. Um, I think we've only got a few more minutes, but it looks like we've got a couple more questions. Hello. Um, I don't know how to word it clearly, but a lot of us uh, as, like, city dwellers and people who grew up pretty domesticated, but... We're also animals and we should connect to nature. Like, how do we balance that? The way we live pretty domestically, but we also want to be more connected to nature. That's one for you. So, so Tim, the question is, so, so 
be growing up very urban, but there is this calling to want to connect to nature, but doesn't really know where to start or, or, or what to do. How, how, what, what, how, how do you navigate that? Yeah, I guess. Yes, yeah, I, mean, I suppose. Um, I suppose I would start online, looking at. I mean, some people get into birds. Birds are not tactile. Um, some people get into. Well, I mean, pet reptiles. They probably usually have terrible lives. So I don't know mm. whether I want to endorse that. Um, tadpoles, rearing tadpoles down the creek. I think mm. that's good. So I guess I'd, I'd start online. There are natural history organisations. I guess I'd try... Um, I mean, you know, we live in a capitalist consumer society where people are used to the idea of sampling lots of things. I mean, the thing about the natural history community is that it's incredibly diverse. So, mm. um, you know, people who botanise... I mean, I've heard someone say about... A bird watcher say about botany that plants are what birds shit on or sit on. <laughs> it was just, you know, totally... Dry. <laughs> about the whole field of botany. <laughs> so I think, you know, there's the opportunity. There's, there's a lot of different fields, seashores. So, yeah, I, I try sampling lots of different things, different organisations, different bits and pieces and find something that suits your yeah. aesthetic sensibilities. And, and if I just add to that, how I started was I became a backyard bird watcher. I just got a bird book and if a bird came in my back garden, I just started to look it up and learn what it was. And then I started to notice the pattern of, oh, it comes this time of year. And then it sort of just grew from there. I think birds are a really accessible way to access nature because they have adapted to cities. And we've probably got just one last question. Hi, guys. Um, my name's Susie. Firstly, thank you, Leela, David and Tim, for joining us in a really great conversation. I feel like we've touched on all parts of humanity in this short discussion. It's quite amazing. Um, anyway, we've talked about connecting with nature and the rarity and fleetingness of birds, so I thought maybe to close, it would be great if you could share with us a moment that you had at Macquarie, Macquarie Island, one of the rarest places on so Maybe probably my big reveal when I so when we landed we landed at this station in Macquarie Island, and then uh, I had a because I had camera gear I had like a 16 kilo backpack, and had to trek up the steepest hill 60 70 knot winds, I was really challenged cliff drops you know you can fall off into roll down these hills it's so steep and it was rain and sleet and ice and all those sort of things. Then we came down to a hut called Brother's Hut and down to a beach. And on this beach, there were some king penguins. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm seeing king penguins. This is amazing. And the party that I was with, I thought, I just want to stay here. This is incredible. There's 12 king penguins. I am happy as ever. I don't want to move. And then one of the, one of the people in my group said, I'm just, let's, why don't we walk just a bit further down and, and see what's around the corner? And so we went further down, and then around the corner was like a thousand king penguins. <laughs> and they had their babies, and their babies are brown and fluffy. They're fatter and bigger than the parents, aren't they? <laughs> and they are hilarious because what happens is, you know, there's a lot of rules about wildlife there. You're not allowed to approach them, but what happens is you sit down, 
and they are so curious. They approach you, and so before you know it, you just have them waddling up and just staring at you. I think there was a photo, I don't know if you saw it, but I had my camera down, and they're just looking at this camera. Their curiosity is beyond, and I cried. It was like that moment where I just went, this is so beautiful and so overwhelming, and the sound is so singular, yeah. isn't oh, it? The yeah. call of king oh, penguins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that was, that was probably a highlight for me. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. <laughs> um, I just want to thank everybody for coming. It means so much. Uh, really, really, really means a lot. And, and just a few words. I just want to let you know that the night is not over and there's so much more on at the museum. This is open till 9 o'clock at night. Uh, so Nathan's museum tour kicks off in five minutes, I think, down this way. Uh, Vanessa Finney is chatting birds in the long gallery. There's live music. There's a bar. Uh, Temple, the video artwork that we made for Vivid last year, is showing in the theatre. Uh, you can go nuts and have fun. And thank you again. And uh, we'll be here too. Sorry? We'll be up here if they want to chat. Oh, sorry. And if you, anyone has any questions that they want to ask us set privately, we'll be, we're around. So you can come and ask us questions as well. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Thank you. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.